Welcome to the Politics of Special Forces podcast. In this 10-part limited series, join me, Kevin D. Stringer, and me, Christian Breed, as we examine just what Special Operations Forces, or SAW, does, and how that might need to change as we move into this new era of great power competition. In each episode, we will discuss an issue that relates to this broad objective, interviewing practitioners and scholars who have lived and studied this important capability and ask what needs to change, what should stay the same. We hope that in each episode, we can bridge the gap between soldiers, scholars, and policymakers, bringing informed opinion and ideas to this important discussion. In this episode, Kevin and I take a deep dive into the central question of this podcast series, which is examining the way in which Special Operations Forces employment can be optimized as we switch focus from counterterrorism and counterinsurgency towards great power competition. Joining us today are two experts on Special Operations Forces employment concepts, Dr. Gail Rivard-Pichet and Dr. Baron Horn. Gail is a strategic analyst with Defence Research and Development Canada, a scientist with Canadian Special Operations Forces Command. She holds a PhD in International Affairs from the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs, where she is also a fellow. In addition to this, she is the Deputy Chair of the Board of Directors for Women in International Security Canada. Bairn is the Command Historian for Canadian Special Operations Forces Command. He holds a PhD in War Studies from the Royal Military College of Canada and is a retired Canadian Army Colonel. Prior to retirement, he was the Deputy Commander of Canadian Special Operations Forces Command. As you will hear in this episode, opinions vary on the question of Special Operations Forces employment in great power competition, and this resulted in a fascinating and thought-provoking discussion. And now, our conversation with Gael and Berend. And so, uh, so Gael, first for you, and then uh, Berend, over to you for a follow-up. Um, I'm just curious, how would you characterize the challenge uh, currently facing Special Operations Forces by this shifting contemporary operating environment that we find ourselves in? Well, CANSOFCOM, as we know it today, um, as it exists, was created and the command came together in 2006. And it was really forged through, I would say, its recent experience in counterterrorism uh, through the war in Afghanistan, as well as uh, the, uh, the campaign in, in Iraq. Um, but what we're really seeing right now is a, strain, is a change in the strategic environment and it's, and CanSofcom has to adapt from this move from counterterrorism to great power competition. And so, first of all, there's this big change from, you know, um, the uh, everything that is ter the terrorist threats are really taking a step back, uh, going to, and I would say over the years, we're expecting as we move forward, they're gonna be uh, less um, less prevalent for CANSOF, but be really based more on a prioritization of what is really what are the main threats to Canada and how and the role that CANSOFCOM will have to play into them. And then there are all the changes in the operating environment as we move forward. The first one being probably climate change, the most fundamental one. Uh, it's affecting theaters of operation. If we think about the Middle East, the Sahel, but it's also opening, opening brand new operating environments, uh, especially uh, the Arctic, which has some uh, important implication for uh, the government of Canada, as well as uh, Canadian forces and ultimately CANSOFCOM. Um, and then there's also all these changes in technology. Technology is evolving extremely quickly, which is forcing CANSOFCOM to evolve, to adapt, uh, and to operate in new domains of operation where uh, until recently, uh, the command didn't really have much 
to do. And we cannot, uh, we cannot uh, forget either the pandemic, which has had uh, quite an impact on the world generally, but also on the Canadian Armed Forces. And it, I think it really shows both for the CAF and for CanSofcom the importance of resiliency. And so as we're looking at this, evolving operating environment, at the emergence of new threats, of these threats are becoming very uh, real, I would say, both at the strategic and the tactical level. Uh, CanSofcom has adopted a new strategic vision that it's really trying to put into motion that is about focusing on asymmetric threats, asymmetric threats, sorry, uh, becoming the force of choice in the gray zone for the Canadian Armed Forces and the government of Canada generally and ultimately adopting, adapting its, uh, its posture to that. But as we do that, as we move forward, as CanSofcom adapt to that new environment, it's facing a lot of cha challenges. Um, as I said, born out of counterterrorism, now having to move on that strategic stage and being able to position itself to defend Canadian interests. Um, and so that requires a need in, in, in mindset, right? Moving from a tactical, very conflict-oriented toward um, mindset, towards more of a strategic, long-term uh, mindset focusing on competition. It's about managing risk, um, lots of threats, different levels of threats, uh, a lot diversity in the type of threats we're facing, yet Guinea Armed Forces and CanSofcom are very small organizations. So how do we move forward and be able to defend against those threats? How do we innovate at the edge? And ultimately it's about developing the right capability and uh, recruiting the right people, maintaining uh, those capabilities, and also uh, retaining the people and making sure that we have a diverse set of capabilities and expertise as we move forward. So those are really the challenges from looking at, you know, that very quickly evolving environment and what can Southcom has to do about it to remain relevant and continue to be able to, uh, to fulfill its mission. Yeah, I think that equation of uh, conflict with tactics and competition with strategy, I think, is really interesting. It's a helpful, it's a helpful way to distinguish the two. I think at, at another layer, almost, which I think is really interesting. So, so thank you for that, Baron. Anything you wanted to add? Uh, just to add to her comprehensive reply, there, I see three uh, additional. Well, maybe not additional, but maybe to, just to summarize challenges. The first one is just you know to balance those legacy roles and what we've done with new you know uh, emerging potential uh, roles that soft will have to play in this uh, you know in the gray zone and in the great power competition uh, because as uh, Gail mentioned you know with 20 years now of counterterrorism uh, coin you know we've gotten used to some real uh, you know factors such as you know air superiority information superiority everything where we can go anywhere we want unhindered but now you can no longer do that you know depending where you go so you know that's one of those things i balance the second thing is you know educating another challenge is educating our leadership and our junior leadership you know to understand what it is what is this competition space because one of the things, you know, a lot of people talk about terminology, we have so many different terms for everything. And, you know, it's a great power competition. You know, some say it's the renewed great power competition. The great power competition, I would argue, is not new. It, it, we've always had great power competitions. It's just that, you know, by utilizing this terminology, it helps with getting leaders to understand what the environment security environment now is you know it's no longer that counter-terrorist 
you know, environment. It's a new environment. We're back to a strategic playing field and things have changed. And we need to be able to educate leaders and politicians to understand the competition space and what it is that is, you know, what the threats are, because oftentimes we don't know what those threats are. You know, is, you know, China buying up a resource uh, company out west? Is that part of their gray zone activity to try to undermine potentially, you know, economies or, or you know, monopolized resources, or is it foreign investment? You know, half the time, we don't even know if we're under attack. You know, the big thing that NATO said with Ukraine in 2015, you know, it's like, well, what's happening now? You know, any case, you know, so we need to educate individuals and we have to educate our junior leaders in critical thinking as well, you know, because they are now in an environment that is shifting rapidly. They have to be able to move from kinetic to non-kinetic. They have to be able to identify what is a threat. You know, they have to identify how they react in a certain situation. And it's no longer drills. You actually have to try to figure out what the ambiguity out there is. And so we need to start educating those. And the last thing I'll mention is just the whole issue of, you know, requiring clear government direction and priorities. Uh, because, you know, we do need to know what is, you know, the government's desire, what are their objectives, what is the national interest in this case, so that we can, again, inform our teams on the ground that they are able to, to react accordingly. So, so that's the only thing I would add to what Gail said. I'd like to come back to the comment you made about great power competition. You as a historian, you rightly said, this is not new. And I'd be curious, how, how, is can, how has Canadian soft contributed in earlier periods of great power conflict or competition? And what could we potentially derive from those lessons? And uh, I've got a specific question about Korea, because I, I don't know the contribution of soft, if any, from the Canadian side, but would be interested to hear your, your thoughts and reflections about the historical and potentially future contribution? That's a difficult question, Kevin, because, you know, when you talk about SOF, you know, in the Cold War, the, you know, 60, well, 48 to, to 90, whatever, there wasn't really that many soft organizations in Canada. There wasn't. I mean, in the you know you had the special forces, you had the SAS. Those are the classics. They existed throughout the Cold War, but for Canada and other nations, it wasn't so much a soft organization as it was uh, an organization that was required to do special operations. So in the Canadian case, it was the Canadian Airborne Regiment. Their mandate had you know special force like tasks. They had unconventional warfare. They had special reconnaissance. They had unconventional warfare. You know, so they had those roles and they were the ones who were responsible for carrying out special operations should we carry them out. However, they never did. We never in the Cold War had Canadian special operations conducted, uh, you know, as part of any big operation. What we had was, you know, Canadians, as you guys know, just as well as I, was we participated in alliance activities and operations, and we participated in UN operations. That's basically what, how we assisted in the, you know, the great power competition back in the Cold War. Now, if you look at other soft organizations during the Cold War, you had special forces. I mean, they did the classics. They, they did unconventional warfare. They did foreign internal defense. They did military assistance. They did counterinsurgency. And so, you know, they have experience back then. 
And when you say, so how can we take the experience from the Cold War and now transfer it to lessons for you know, great power competition, the biggest one is because great power competition is all about you know, trying to get access and influence into other societies, populations, countries to further your own political, economic, social, military objectives. So what we can take from the past experiences, it's about relationships. You have to be able to have those networks, those relationships. And how do you do that? Well, you need to have, you know, the special forces, the American special forces were regionally focused. They knew the culture, they knew the language. And so they could actually develop those deep relationships that you could, you know, if there was a crisis or if you had to contact someone, you knew how to, you knew who to, you know, on the Rolodex, who to talk to. And more than that is you understood, you could talk to them in their own language and you understood their perspective. And this is all about CQ, part of that education piece I told you about earlier. You know, you have to be able to understand how others see the world. You know, what is driving their decision-making so that you can utilize that to better understand them to achieve your own objectives. And so that's the big one. The other lesson I guess we can come for, we can draw from this is the whole idea of constrained environments. And this is why SOF is so important in the great power competition, is the fact that you no longer have, you know, unilateral right to do anything you want in the, in the environment because you're looking at peer, you know, competitors who also have the same type of technology, uh, sensors, you know, everything that you have. Plus, you know, as Gail told us about proliferation of technology and information technology is, you know, even non-state actors or rogue states or even lesser states have the ability now to cause harm to you and to your forces. So you really have to be conscious, cognizant of the environment you're working on and, you know, what type of overmatch, if you even have overmatch anymore, exists. I'll leave it at that. And I appreciate that that insights. I mean, it's interesting to hear the Canadian experience historically was was not, if I understood you correctly, not specifically soft. You had other units that performed soft missions, but you're drawing some, I think, generic lessons that could be valuable for the future for us to at least think about. I think what I'd like to do is sh shift over Gail. Um, Berndt alluded to it. I mean, soft has a number of missions, uh, unconventional warfare. You highlighted the extreme focus, I would say, on counterinsurgency, counterterrorism. Um, with this now shift to great power competition, how do you see force employment? Is there going to be a different weighting, di different emphasis? And uh, I'll give you the extreme view. Well, counterterrorism is no longer needed. Um, are we going back to the 90s where, where this is kind of a, a standby force? Um, would be interested to your thoughts on how you see the the, the force force employment maybe potentially developing in terms of weighting and emphasis. I think there's going to be uh, definitely a change in focus from emphasis on direct action, like we did on through counterterrorism and counterinsurgency, towards more of uh, strategic positioning and understanding the environment. So that switch I talked about from conflict to competition, it means not defeating the enemy or the adversary, but better understanding him to then be able to position yourself to protect the interests of the country. 
And I think this is something that's going to be quite challenging in a Canadian context because I don't think that politically we've approached um, the international environment that way. Um, at least not for, uh, well, actually not at all. And we're now in a position where we've grown, uh, we have special forces that can do that. We are part of partnership and we're deployed internationally. We have presence on different continents and in regions of high strategic interest. That means that um, we're gonna be called into kind of maintaining an enduring presence for global positioning. But I think what we're going to see is this switch from, as I said, the focus on direct action towards more um, strategic, uh, st different strategic roles. Of course, CanSofcom uh, will always, probably, will always keep that role of crisis response. So there's this notion that CanSofcom kinetically needs to respond to crisis, uh, is a partner uh, to other Canadian agencies in response to those crises either domestically, but also internationally. We can think about, for example, hostage rescue. Um, that's probably a good example, uh, like a good case where we will likely continue to see uh, the government of Canada and, uh, and uh, call upon CanSofcom and other uh, domestic agencies to be part of that answer. But generally speaking, I think we're going to see the switch from just crisis response towards more of uh, strategic seeing CanSofcom deployed as both a Canadian, uh, sorry, a strategic sensor and a, um, and a strategic signaler. So troops will be sent to, will be deployed to provide awareness, bring back intelligence, bring back information, and also to send a signal to our adversary and our partners. And this is why this is where we're going to see missions such as uh, partner capacity building, security assistance, uh, maybe resistance warfare, all of these uh, old, I would say, mission sets coming back to the forefront, not only to advance liberal values like we've seen for the last 30 years or contributing to state building's uh, endeavors, but really to um, to forward deployed and, and really position Canadian interests abroad and protect them again in this longer term competition game that's happening. Yeah, well, that's fantastic. And it's, it's interesting how you really highlight the this shift towards a more proactive role for uh, special operations forces. And I think that's a really important takeaway. I just wanna highlight that because one of our objectives of course uh, with this whole series is to really help inform the policy discussion and I think that highlighting that saying, you know, we're more than just a, a rapid reaction force, more than just a fire brigade, you know, oh my gosh, something's happened. Let's, you know, hit the, the soft button and, and, and let's fix the problem. It's let's, let's do some horizon scanning and see where can we strategically employ forces such as special operations forces in a more proactive role, more strategic role. I think it's a great piece. I just want to highlight that deduction, that, that, that takeaway. Um, so, so thank um, you. Yeah. yeah, go ahead. On yeah. that, I would say that even um, that means also that CanSofcom's role is probably going to be more below the threshold, like in the gray zone beforehand. We're going to be there to enable and to support. It's not going to be an organization that's going to be supported necessarily by the CAF in, in this new environment, but it's going to be supporting the, government, the Canadian Armed Forces in the joint force and in the joint fight moving forward as both a sensor and a signaler and a supporter. Okay, so you know when it comes to uh, the question here, you know what considerations for force employment change? 
I don't believe, you know, forced employment won't change. The circumstances, the environments, the regions, yes, you know, that may change or so. But when you look at forced employment, you know, you look at the classic roles, you know, direct action, strategic reconnaissance, high value tasks, which include everything from, you know, unconventional warfare, regular warfare, military assistance and all those they all will still be in place. They'll still do that. I mean, when we look at irregular warfare, the whole, you know, people want to say, hey, you know, we're not going to worry about counterinsurgency or CT anymore, but you have to. Look at Africa's on fire. The jihadist movement there is growing. The Philippines, I mean, Middle East, you need to have that capability of keeping that under control. Terrorist organizations, you know, VEOs, Who's going to do that? It's still going to be a soft role. And all that stuff about forward positioning and all that and be more proactive, my God, we have been soft, has been throughout its entire existence. I mean, we have SAS on the borders of, of Ukraine and Russia right now. I mean, you know, back in 94, we had, you know, when uh, JTF2 first started, they were in Haiti with the, the uh, CDS looking at what's going on. We sent teams all over the world to get ground truth, whether it's in Africa, other places, uh, Peru, wherever stuff was happening, we sent, the Americans sent teams all over the place to do this. So, I mean, you know, we've always been that information sensor. We've always been there to get the ground truth. We've always been the ones who, you know, the government looks to because it's high reaction, rapid reaction, you know, to go and find out what's going on the ground. Because even though, you know, we're part of an alliance, everyone's part of an alliance and coalition, governments before, especially the Canadian government, who's always been very risk averse to military engagements throughout our history will always want to know what is the actual reality on the ground because yeah we trust our partners but at the same time every nation has its own interests and so you know if ukraine is saying oh my god the russians are about to cross the border you better send the troops now before we do that we want to make sure we know what's going on and that goes anywhere in the world and so you know i i'm not convinced Force employment will change that much. It will depend on the government, what is important to them, circumstances on the ground, but we will always do those classic roles. I don't see very many new roles coming up. The one I would see is counter soft. You know, you, you know, when those little green men come across the border, you need to be able to deal with them. You know, those agitators, are they real protesters or are they someone else's soft doing something? So, you know, that potentially is a new role. But when we talk about, you know, in the cyber and the social media, all that stuff's important, disinformation. I see soft getting enablers. I mean, the only the Americans have psyops and civil affairs, so they can do the strategic narrative, they can control that. And they've been doing that in Africa to try to stymie the Chinese from, from getting inroads into certain places. All other soft organizations don't have that capability. And most of the countries like Canada were too small to start growing, you know, a, a sister organization to the American monster there. So, you know, we'll have enablers. We'll have, you know, potentially the information, uh, the uh, influence activities group, you know, tacked on to something or, you know, JTFX or, or who knows what. But force employment, I still see it being roughly, you know, the same just changing with circumstances. That's that's my perspective. Well, to me, I would just 
I mean, I agree that forced employment is going to be is going to continue to be extremely relevant, and direct action is going to be a core function of special operation forces. But I think it's the relatively the relative weight in the Canadian context that is going to change, and we're going to see a growing emphasis on uh, signal on signaling and sensing what is happening, especially as we're looking how the environment is is changing and to be able to forward deployed or preposition troops on the ground, we will need this ability to actually read there and it and to see what's happening. It does and have situational awareness. It doesn't necessarily mean um, you know not sending troops, but to send troops that have the right training, the right expertise, the technology to be uh, to actually do those uh, those function on the ground. See, a lot of people put emphasis on new, we're not going to do direct action anymore. But, you know, when was the last time we did a direct action uh, operation? Uh, you know, a long time ago. When was the last time we did military assistance, which is a phase zero operation, which is part of the great power competition, developing those relationships? We're still doing them. We're, we've been doing them for forever, and we're still doing them. So I think people tend to forget we are already doing a lot of that great power competition soft activity in the world. All NATO soft is, is doing those type of military assistance missions. You look at the Europeans, they just funneled a whole bunch of new forces into, into the Sahel to help with that conflict there. So, you know, soft is doing what it used to do and what it's also doing now in the great power competition. So I wonder. I think um, this is this has been great. I love the the discussion back and forth. This is exactly what we want to want to see out of these these series. So this is this is fantastic. So thank you, and I appreciate the the candor both of you are are offering in this. Um, I think though there there there's something, and maybe this is what we can explore further. There's something about this shift though that that seems to be stuck in in in, in certainly uh, my mind still that there is something that's different that requires a rethink in terms of how we want to employ special operations forces, you know, the versus how we did it 20 years ago to versus or for the last 20 years to how we want to do it, do it today. And I want to see if we can kind of unpack that a bit more. And so, so Gail, I want to look to you and, and, and ask the question, because we've talked a lot about, you know, GPC being more of the same. It's never gone away. It's, it's never, it's all, you know, we've been here before, but is there anything, and I think there's some truth to that for sure, but is there anything that you see in particular that that's different this time around? Is there something different about what we're facing right now in the, in the current environment where we see a, a rising China, a spoiling Russia. Um, is that different from what we saw in the past? And if so, what are some of the, the key differences? I mean, of course, if we look back, I don't think we should reinvent the wheel. We shouldn't think that what is happening right now has never happened and that it, no lessons can be drawn from the past. I completely disagree with this approach. However, in the Canadian context specifically, it is important to recognize that it is, it is the first time in the last 80 years, so since the end of the Second World War, that Canada's strategic geography is no longer offering us a safe heaven. So for the last 80 years, Canada has been in a situation where there was no direct threats. We've been safe at home. Uh, we were able to, I would say, punch above our weight uh, in international institution, and we have really benefited from our alliances with the United States, but also like generally speaking, uh, the, the liberal international organizations that came out from the post-World War and even more after the end of the Cold War. But now we're in a context where uh, even though the United States still, um, are, still have a successful conventional and strategic deterrence, 
where China and Russia have actually learned from that and have found ways to circumvent that um, those those defenses. Uh, and and so and we're being as a close ally to the United States, we are in a position where we are vulnerable. And I think the last four years have taught us that you know we might be more vulnerable than we thought, depending on whoever is in power in uh, in Washington. And so these changes are really bringing, I think, will force the Canadian government to rec to reckon with uh, what are those threats and how can we best stand to defend ourselves. And I think this is where I uh, this is where CanSoftcom comes into play, like other national security agencies and the rest of the CAF. But um, it's really important, I think, as a country to have a conversation about what those threats are and what are um, our interests, how do we define them, how are these threatened, and how are the threats to those interests, what are the challenges that concerns soft that uh, emerge from those, right? And so, uh, generally speaking, I, I said that already, but I, I do think, and I mean, <laughs> Uh, Bern and I will have to agree to disagree, but I think there's been an overemphasis on direct action that has affected how CanSoftcom is structured, who it recruits, and how it's just, it, it maintains its personnel and the type of capabilities. And as now we need to be able to prevent those threats, to defer against those threats, we need to be able to sense them and to have a better situational awareness of how it's going and what's coming at us. And that will require, I think, more diversity in the type of expertise and the type of skill sets that we're maintaining in the command to ultimately maybe have to use direct action. But that sense part that becoming that is going to be very is going to be critical to the defense of those interests and the defense of Canada more broadly. You know, I, you know, your the point Gail makes about direct action and the emphasis. There are some systemic structural issues I think with all soft organizations that when you look at selection, you know, they select individuals to do DAs. You know, it's a hand, a shoot, move, communicate piece. That's what they are recruiting for. Uh, that I agree with, and the fact that you know, if we go to now more non-kinetic activities, you need a different type of person. I agree with that as well. Uh, you know, you need, you know, we have to figure out as a command what it is we are, we want. And that's why the Americans, they'll have Delta, you know, and that's their DA, you know, CT experts, precision, surgical, the type of excellent. And then they have the Green Berets, you know, who are their special forces, you know, working unconventional warfare, working with indigenous forces to counter occupying force or, or power. I mean, yeah, they, they've sort of separated. They've lost some of that because of Afghanistan and Iraq where special forces, they lost their language and regional expertise because they were all doing DAs. So I buy that piece of the argument that SOF has to look at what we need in the way of how we recruit that absolutely 100%, but I still believe we're paying, paying too much attention to this, or DA, DA, we all be use DA, we don't. You know, we, we have that capability, but we haven't done it in a long time, and we've been doing other stuff. Now, when it comes to, you know, question about, you know, why is the great power competition unique? I would argue there's a number of functions, and the biggest one is the advancements and the proliferation of information technology and technology period. I mean, because that has allowed now, you know, actors, whether it's state or non-state actors, peer or non-peer competitors or whatever, to have an inordinate amount of ability to, to 
impact the country, to threaten the country. I mean, disinformation, cyber attacks, which, you know, with just the latest one, shutting down that pipeline to the Northeast uh, in the States there, you know, it's just incredible, shutting down grids or so. Deep fakes now where they can actually make it look like I'm saying something completely different than I'm saying, but it looks like I'm talking. I mean, the implications of all of that, you know, you can divide and how the Russians have used you know, trolls and abused, you know, that, that whole disinformation campaign to interfere with the 2016 U.S. election. You know, they used cyber attacks in Ukraine and Georgia and Estonia to basically shut down the, the you know, the country. And, you know, their ability to, to you know, just uh, load all sorts of disinformation onto platforms that create divisions within society, the far right, the far left, Black Lives Matter, you know, whatever it may be, and, and they're, they're able to divide societies. So when it comes to the great power competition, that is very, that's where the real threats are. And how do you deal with that? Because one, is it hackers or is it state, you know, that's, that's behind this? You, you don't know, you can't necessarily prove it all the time. And so that has created a big change in this whole environment. You know, so it's social media and the internet. It, it's just created a, a vehicle that allows adversaries to get right into your society and start creating issues. And that's difficult, you know, how do you deal with that? I'm not sure that's a soft issue, but you know, how do you deal with that? And the next issue, which is a soft issue, is the complexity, which new is just the complexity of actors. So we're not just dealing with a resurgent Russia and an emergent China and a, you know, uh, North Korea and Iran. You're also dealing with all sorts of other states, non-state actors, violent extremist organizations. So you have such a panoply of different actors in the, in the security environment, that's why you need to have operators who are capable of, of working their way through ambiguity and complexity, you know, and figuring out what needs to be done, whether it's kinetic or non-kinetic, based on what the government objectives are. I'll leave it at that. Well, as the American outsider in this conversation, I, I'm quite impressed. I think the can Softcom commander has certainly vibrant discussions among his staff, and I'm, I'm appreciating uh, slightly different views and also some disagreement. As Christian said, I think this is the critical thinking that we need in the soft community to think about next steps. I'm going to come from a slightly different angle and would be interested for your personal uh, opinions, actually. So Afghanistan's been a, a crucible for NATO soft interoperability, working together, building partnerships counter ISIS fight uh, for the Five Eye, soft, New Zealand, Australia, Canada, uh, United States and UK has also served a, a similar purpose. Um, the two decades have brought soft together in different ways. Uh, interoperability has been a big word. Uh, doctrine, some, some commonalities of doctrine. As we kind of shift into this new, but not, not really new, great power competition, how do you see these relationships developing? NATO, Five Eye, um, your qualitative view to it. Maybe firm. It's going to be very, very important. I mean, the relationships always are. And I mean, the big thing with great power competition is, you know, as I said earlier, it's the whole access and influence of other countries, other, you know, partners, nations, whatever, uh, you know, so the, the, ability to work together will be primordial because the biggest thing is with you know 
uh, actors such as China and Russia, you know, who are able to try to divide, you know, create uh, angst and, you know, division between allies. And they had a great go with, with the former administration or so, you know, you need to be able to coalesce, you know, and share, share sort of tasks. Uh, you know, as uh, Gail brought it earlier about, you know, the strategic landscape and, and the forward positioning and all this, not everyone can do it alone. And when there's so many areas opening up, you need to be able to work with your partners. So, you know, right now the Russians are investing heavily in the Arctic. Uh, you know, they have like 40 icebreakers capable of, of, you know, breaking through 13 feet of ice, they're building some more. The Americans have one that's capable of breaking through six feet of ice, you know, and Canadians, uh, we're still working on ours. I mean, so, and then you also have Africa's on fire, the Middle East is on fire, you know, Ukraine's on fire, the, the Eastern Bloc countries are on fire. How do you deal with all of that? And how you deal with all of that is a soft network or, you know, your allies where you purse out, you know, okay, you know, France and, and some countries, you'll take care of the Sahel, you know, Norwegians, Canadians, you know, with American assistance, we'll take care of the, you know, the Arctic area, you know, so, so you can balance out who's doing what so you don't get anyone burning out or, or, or you know, unable to cover certain areas. Uh, so I, I see that relationship, you know, intelligence as well, lessons learned. Okay, so what happened in Estonia? What happened in Georgia? What happened in the States just recently? How did the solar winds happen? You need to have that ability to share so everyone else can combine. How do we do it? And NATO's been very good at this. They have, you know, they've developed that hybrid warfare task group, the strategic narrative task group. You know, they've looked, did lessons learned on all the countries that were hit with the cyber attacks. You know, they've looked at heavily at what happened in the Ukraine and how to deal with that. So between all of the countries working together and the lessons learned, and then, you know, this brings in soft as well. You know, how do we burden share and how do we share information to become better at what we do? I appreciate that perspective. Uh, Gail, your thoughts, would you like to add something or different different take on it? Uh, maybe what I would add is, uh, generally speaking, through Afghanistan, Iraq, uh, NATO, we've developed what I would call like North-North uh, partnerships, North-North relations. but. Moving forward, if we're going to invest in uh, partner capacity building, uh, mission security force assistance, we should think more creatively about north-south competition. Uh, north, sorry, north-south cooperation in a soft context. That means that it's only about it's not only about providing you know basic assistance or basic training, but how do you build that relationship into one that it's mutually mutually uh, beneficial? Especially if we're talking about once again maintaining. Um, presence and influence in a specific region, that goes by building a real partnership, not just a client-patron relationship, but building ones that actually can evolve into a friendship in cooperation with the rest of the government of Canada, Global Affairs Canada, or Department of Foreign Affairs, and, and in order to really advance those interests. I think soft cooperation is, is crucial, it's critical, we need to think critically about it. Uh, it is a big for multiplier, it's an enabler, but we also need to, um, to think critically about how we approach it and in which ways it would actually help us to achieve our objectives, protect our interests uh, in regions that are important uh, to our government. Well, I find a lot of uh, 
synthesis between your two viewpoints. I mean, the, the issue of burden sharing and information sharing, and you talked about the force multiplication. Uh, I think certainly from a US perspective, in my opinion, you know, this is something that we look at, that network of, of like-minded partners, whether it's NATO or FIBI will be crucial. Um, I'm gonna shift a little bit again, uh, since we have academics and academic practitioners uh, on the call. Uh, there's been a debate certainly within the US, but I think it's also gotten a little bit wider about is there a theory of special operations or does there need to be one? Controversial, there's yaysayers and naysayers. Uh, do we need a Clausewitz for Sof, a Jomini, a Mahan? Um, I know where I stand in the debate, but I would be curious from your perspective, as we move into this great power competition, do we need a better, do we need a theory um, that takes us beyond say doctrine and practice? Uh, maybe we'll reverse it. Gail, I'll, I'll start with you and then we'll get the command historian's view. So I may have to not directly answer that question, <laughs> but what I would say, like, I don't know, is it useful or not? You know, if people want to come up with a theory of soft, why not? Like, you know, be my, my guess. But I would say what I think is more important is better uh, collaboration between academia and special operation forces. Um, special operation forces are really hard to study uh, for clear security reasons, but I think uh, a greater dialogue between the two would help to increase, first of all, awareness and understanding from the outside, but also it will it would inform decision making in the inside, and especially in a Canadian context where where Cansolcom is very small and therefore uh, human size, it's easy to reach out and to establish working uh, working relationship. I think um, opening up a little bit of kimono to share and to have debates and conversations would help to contribute to making sure that Cansolcom remain relevant, is aware of the big debates, and also increase that production of knowledge between the two, which I think is very healthy. Valuable points. Bernd, over to you, the theory. Yeah, so I mean, interesting, Kevin, because uh, as you know, you know, the people say we don't need a theory. They, they don't want a theory because they're afraid if we have a theory, we become less innovative, we become slaves to doctrine, and we won't be agile enough in the, in the uh, environment. Those who say, no, no, we need a theory, it's all because others need to understand. And so when you talked about a theory, you're actually, you know, looking at something to explain the strategic utility, the character, the characteristics of SOP, so others can understand what it does, how it's employed or so. Now, you know, I go back to my argument of earlier, and I, you know, I would argue that People say, is there a theory? But there's so much written on SOF already. I mean, you have uh, William McRaven's Spec Ops book, which has a theory of special operations. Mind you, it's just on stronghold the break-in. So it's limited to a degree. You have James Kiris, who did a study of World War II and SOF, strategy in SOF. You have Robert Spulak's, uh, uh, what's his was again, um, uh, soft theory, something about soft theory, I forget the actual title of it or so, but it was also JSAW, the Joint Special Operations University, put out a three-volume set on soft theory. The CanSoftCom uh, Education Research Center has put out a number of books and uh, uh, monographs on soft environment and th theoretical issues, and the command itself has put out its own sort of, you know, strategic horizons, and this is, you know, CanSoftCom. 
the Americans, every one of their soft organizations has put out, you know, doctrine manuals. NATO has put out doctrine manuals. There's so much out there that the idea of, you know, we need a theory to explain how soft is going to operate. No, no, I don't think, I think it's out there already, you know, through practice and publications that have been out there. Do we need one specially for GPC? I would argue, no, we don't, because as I've argued earlier, many of the tasks that SOF will do during GPC, we've always done, and we're still doing them now. Some circumstances may change, some environments may change, and of course, with information technology and everything else, the sensor full environment makes it more difficult or so, but I don't think we need a special theory because the employment principles remain. Now, what we do need is a very clear understanding of what the competition space is. What is the GPC competition space? And we need our operators to understand that. We need our leaders to understand that. We need our pol politicians to understand that. So they know exactly what the environment is, you know, what the threats are, and how we need to react to those threats and then how does soft play into that? Because GPC is not a military game by itself. It's a full spectrum, every tool available to the government, to a state, you know, they have to employ everything in order to both offensively and defensively operate in this uh, competition space. Well, folks, um, thank you so much for your time. I think uh, both of you have been very generous with your time, and I think we've come to the to the end of our of our session today. Um, I don't want to uh, monopolize any more of your time today. Um, but listen, the uh, the discussions that that you shared with us today and that we were privy to um, were enlightening, and uh, I really um, am grateful to both of you for for your candor and your willingness to to really debate some of these issues. Um, I think it's fantastic that perhaps we don't all agree on the same uh, on the same scope of issues and things like that. But what I think we do agree is that we need to be talking about this stuff and we need to be reflecting on this. And um, ultimately, um, the decision on who is using what, when, and where isn't ours. But we, we certainly need to put that information forward to allow and enable uh, the best decision possible. And I think this has uh, gone some way, if I might be so so bold to suggest uh, this has gone some way to, to enable that. Um, so thank you so much to, for your time. It wouldn't have been possible without you. Um, Kevin, any last words you want to say before we sign off? Yeah, I'll just reiterate, it was a, a very rich and, and vibrant discussion. Um, some disagreements, uh, some agreements, and I think this is exactly what we need as we think critically about special operations forces in the future. So thank you again for your participation. Thank you.